Hey mamas, it's Megan, your host here at the VBAC Link. I am so excited to get into our amazing episode today, but before we do, I wanted to do a quick Q&A on my number one most asked question, which is how do I prepare for a VBAC? I know it's a lot to unpack, but here are some of the top answers for you. Find a VBAC supportive provider and make sure you are getting the right nutrition. This includes getting optimal amounts of protein, vitamins, and minerals to support a healthy VBAC pregnancy. I personally recommend Needed's prenatals to all of my clients and to this amazing community of ours. Head to thisisneeded.com to get 20% off with code VBAC20. That is thisisneeded.com, code VBAC20. Hello, hello, everybody. We are getting out of winter and maybe into some spring weather, hopefully. I always hope for spring weather in March because it's my daughter's birthday, and she always wants sunshine, not snow, for her birthday. So I'm crossing my fingers that this is the month that we have sunshine, not snow. Um, But I hope you guys are having a wonderful beginning of Well, I guess it's not really spring, but I hope you're having a wonderful beginning of March. We are kicking off our very first Monday episode for 2024. You guys, we have a little surprise for you. We are going to be sending out two, not just one, but two episodes a week. So make sure to tune in on Mondays and Wednesdays for stories and information. And today we are kicking it off with Julie. (laughs) Hello. Hey, so happy to be here. And yes, I'm hoping it's warm or getting there because I ended the popsicle permanently from like November through March. So let's just uh, thaw out a little bit, please. Just a little bit, even if we just get some little sprinkles, right? Let's have Mm -hmm. April showers in March. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You guys, I am so excited for today's episode. Julie and I feel like these are some questions. I'm definitely getting these questions, you know, on the weekly Q&As. But these are some questions that are often asked and we want to answer your questions today. And we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of things. What are the chances? A whole bunch of things. I have preeclampsia, a special scar. I have gestational diabetes. diabetes, maybe uterine fibroids. We're going to talk a little bit more into those. What are your chances for VBAC or for vaginal birth if you have these things or have had them? Maybe you are not pregnant yet and you had preeclampsia last time or gestational diabetes last time. What are your chances? So without further ado, I'm going to turn the time over to Julie for our review and then we will dive right in. Without further ado, here is Julie. Okay, so this review is from Apple Podcasts and it's from, no, it's from Google. Sorry, this review is from Google. It is from Krista. And she says, this podcast is beyond empowering. After my C-section, after multiple unnecessary interventions, I knew immediately I wanted a VBAC for my next baby. I found this podcast not long after and have been an avid listener for four years. Four years. Wow. That's amazing. I know. (laughs) The VBAC link lifts the veil on birth and allows women to educate themselves to make their own informed decisions instead of just blindly trusting providers, as many of us have in the past. Because of this podcast, the topic of birth slash VBACs has become such a passion of mine, and I now feel confident in my knowledge and ability to advocate for myself next time. I recommend this podcast to every mom and expectant parent I know. 
I am now pregnant with my second due March 2024. Hey, that's like right now. Yeah, yeah. And already preparing and re-listening to every episode and have the honor to have Megan as my doula. Whoa, that's awesome. <laughs> Hopefully you'll hear my successful VBAC story soon. Megan, this is your client. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. You'll be at a birth soon for her. Holy I cow, know. that's amazing. Oh, I love it so much. I love that she said that we lift the veil. That yes. was so cool. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. You guys, these reviews, as you can see, we're like over here, like smiling and gleaming on the Zoom podcast. We smiling love the reviews. Yes, we are. <laughs> um, so if you wouldn't mind dropping us a review, your reviews truly help other women of strength find this podcast and find this platform. You can leave it on Google, just like Krista did. You can go to Apple Podcasts. You can go to uh where else spotify can you i don't know if you can on spotify but google you can just email us email us at info at the vbacklink.com with your subject review and you never know you might be read on the next podcast you are tuned into the vbacklink podcast with megan heaton who is a longtime doula and vback mom herself here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a c-section Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. Okay, Julie. Are you ready? Let's do it. Always, right? Okay, let's talk about preeclampsia. And you had preeclampsia with mm -hmm. your first um, that did end up ending in a cesarean. However, you went on to have three HBACs. And so um, HBAC, if you're just new with us, it's home birth after cesarean. So yeah. So I guess right there, I just want to kind of point out like, is it possible to have preeclampsia and then go on and have a vaginal birth? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Heck yes, yeah, it, it is. is. I did it. You're speaking to the girl right here. Now here, preeclampsia <laughs> is kind of tricky because there a lot of research shows, according to the Preeclampsia Foundation, so there's a Preeclampsia Foundation you can find at preeclampsia.org. According to them, there's a suggested risk of that you can that you have a 20% chance of having preeclampsia again after you've had it the first time. Um, however, there are some experts that cite a range anywhere from 5% to 80% just depending on when you had it in your prior pregnancy, how bad it was and any additional risk factors that you have. So I have had clients, most of my clients that have had preeclampsia once don't have it again, but I have had one client that's had it both times. My pediatrician had preeclampsia, both of her pregnancies. Like I, it really just depends on a lot of different re risk factors, but but preeclampsia also doesn't excuse, exclude you from having a VBAC. You're just going to have to get induced earlier for the safety of your baby, usually around 37 weeks, unless it's severe, mm -hmm. they might want to induce you a little bit earlier than that. But yeah, I just feel like I mean, me and Megan, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent and then I'll bring it back. But like me and Megan, we're talking just a little bit about, about this, that a lot of these things, like the biggest risk with VBAC is uterine rupture, right? That's what we talk about. 
But a lot of these other things like gestational diabetes and preeclampsia and big baby and, you know, all these other things, the risks of those or the perceived risks sometimes doesn't have anything to do with VBAC. It's completely separate. It doesn't impact your or increase your risks of uterine rupture. Not even big baby increases your risk of uterine rupture. There's no studies that support that. So preeclampsia and VBAC should be treated separately, right? Although a lot of times providers don't treat it separately. They think, oh, well, you have had a C-section and you have preeclampsia, so we should just schedule a C-section. That is where provider bias comes into play and these perceptions when there's just not a lot of studies and evidence to support any of that, right? So anyway, circling it back to preeclampsia, there's lots of things you can do to make your body healthy overall that may reduce your chances of preeclampsia, although I guess we're still not entirely certain about how Why? preeclampsia comes about mm-hmm. in the first place. But yeah, I don't know. What what do you have to say about that, Megan? Yeah, I think I think it's important to kind of do what you like separate the thought of like if I have this, I have to do this. When yeah. a lot of providers, especially if it is severe and like we've got really really high blood pressure and and we're 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 severe, right? Like they may like specifically say you need to schedule a C-section, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to. And if you have preeclampsia in general, it doesn't mean you're going to have a C-section. I I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from there's no have to ever. There's no absolute. Yes. There's no absolutes. And there are things that say like you may be at increased risk of cesarean, but that's typically because of those things like induction, right? And so, yeah, so there's really no concrete evidence on what mode of delivery is best if you have preeclampsia. So again, it comes down to provider. Get a supportive provider, talk about it, really ask them. If they tell you, okay, because you have preeclampsia, we are going to have to schedule a C-section. Ask them, do not stray away from getting the evidence and the information that you need. You can say, okay, can we talk about the evidence of why I have to? Mm-hmm. right? Ask questions. Just don't, don't feel bad for asking questions. It's okay. If you have that question, ask it. So yeah, I think that's kind of, it's kind of it. Yeah. And I think like the overall theme maybe too of this episode and maybe the whole entire feedback link period is asking questions to your provider and talking with your provider and having a mutual trust with your provider where they trust you and you trust them right? It's like a two-way street to where you guys can collaborate together and create a plan of care that is comfortable with you and comfortable with them. Like, I know that like a lot of care is like centric around the provider and what they're comfortable with. And like some providers are not comfortable with doing VBAC for preeclampsia or after two or more cesareans or after, you know, a special scar or with gestational diabetes or whatever. But, and you need to have a plan that you're comfortable with and that your provider's comfortable with because i promise you you don't want a provider that's nervous around your care because they're mm-hmm. doing something that they that they're not comfortable with so i feel like that's so important to have like that mutual trust between yourself and your provider where they trust you that you're not going to do anything dangerous or stupid um mm-hmm. and you trust them that they're not going to do anything dangerous or stupid you know what i mean and i use stupid loosely that's a very medical term stupid you know but <laughs> But it's important, right? It's important mm-hmm. that there's that mutual trust that you can discuss your plan with your provider. And if you're not on the same page with your provider, it might be a good idea to look for a different one. Yeah. And it's also important to ask, well, what are the 
what are the chances of the negative outcomes for a scheduled C-section? Um, because on the NIH, and we'll make sure to include the link so you can read them, but it did say an increased risk of various postpartum complications was found in patients allocated directly to having a cesarean section, including blood loss. So when we have preeclampsia, it seems that we have a, a higher risk of, of issues potentially, but like bleeding is not a great thing, right? When we have platelets being affected and things like that, we may have increased chances of blood loss, which we already know cesarean cesareans in general have increased risk of blood loss. And so you mm -hmm. may want to ask the questions about what kinds of risks you have if you do schedule a C-section, just have a schedule a scheduled C-section in general. What are the risks there? What are the risks to you and your baby there? So yeah, anyway, ask questions. Okay, we're going to talk about special scar. So with special scar, we do have a blog on that and it does have an attachment of like, you know, just a lot of studies and things that um, our favorite group on Facebook, special scar, special hope. Is that, mm -hmm. am I like brain farting? <laughs> special scar, special hope. It's amazing. And if you have a special scar, meaning you have maybe like a classic, uh, anything low, anything other than a low transverse. So a J, a T, you know, all of those things definitely check out that group. But the unfortunate thing is, is the studies that we do have are not really up to date. Like we don't have mm -hmm. a ton of concrete studies that are like really recent or, or even large particular studies. And so we want to talk about like, just in general, what are the chances if you have a classical or, you know, a special scar the chances are there. You can still be back. There may be slightly increased chances of things like uterine rupture, but it is still possible. We have stories on our podcast even of people who have gone on to have vaginal births with special scars. I've supported a client that had a special scar. All was really well, and they just took you know, a little extra precaution and they wanted to make sure that they knew the signs of uterine rupture and they knew, which I think everybody should, and they wanted to make sure the baby was doing okay and mom was doing okay and all was well and it all ended up beautifully. But all in all, I think in the end, it's going to come down to finding the support, finding mm -hmm. that support. And that can be tricky. So uh, what are the chances to have a vaginal birth with a special scar? Possible. I don't have a number for you. What are the chances of finding a supportive provider with having a special scar? It's harder to be lower. Yeah. That's yeah. going to be lower. Well, and that sucks. It does suck. It does suck. So the special scars website has specialscars.org slash studies, and it has links to all the notable studies, but the, the biggest studies that are out there show the your chances of uterine rupture are less than 2% with a special scar. And so I feel like that might be an acceptable risk for some parents and that might not be an acceptable risk for other parents. And I feel like that's really important to just acknowledge that what is acceptable level of risk is different for everybody. And each of your providers is going to be, uh, have a different level of risk that they're comfortable with as well. And so yes. the hard thing is, is there's not a ton of studies on special scars, but special scars is not just about like, if you have a different C-section incision, it's also like, about myomectomy, different, different, mm -hmm. um, 
different types of uterine surgeries, things like that. Basically anything that's not in the lower uterine segment and that has been, you know, cut or severed in some way. I don't know the right way. I don't know the nice way to say that, but like if you've had any uterine surgery, any type of uterine surgery that's not on your lower uterine segment, that's considered a special scar. It could have absolutely nothing to do with pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take a quick break from our amazing episode today to continue talking about preparing for a VBAC. I mentioned Needed earlier, and I just wanted to expand on why I suggest them. They offer radically better nutrition products. They offer the most comprehensive prenatal that's available in both a delicious tasting vanilla powder and in capsule form. And don't just take my word for it. The women in our VBAC community have fallen in love with their products too and are noticing a difference in their energy, digestion, and their mood. Just like we talk about making sure your provider is VBAC supportive or not, I suggest you do the same with your prenatals. Here's the deal. 95% of women in the prenatal stages have nutrient deficiencies. Most prenatal vitamins include the bare minimum nutrition based on outdated guidelines and stale research. We deserve to thrive, not just survive. Needed offers radically better nutrition products, education, and advocacy rooted in clinical research and practitioner validation. Their products are third-party tested and backed by clinical insights from over 4,000 practitioners. They are thoughtful about every ingredient using exactly what is needed in bioavailable forms. And this is important because you and your baby deserve the best. If you are not already one of the hundreds of women in our Women of Strength community using Needed as your prenatal, consider switching to Needed. Get 20% off your order by using VBAC20 at checkout. You can visit that at thisisneeded.com and use code VBAC, V-B-A-C, 2-0 at checkout. Okay, let's talk about failure to progress. What are your chances if your last cesarean was due to failure to progress? Imagine me putting big, giant air quotes around failure Failure to to progress. progress. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I don't know if this is one of those things that I take to heart because it personally happened to me and I was told Mm -hmm. failure to progress and it kind of ticked me off. But a lot of the times, so your chances if you had a previous diagnosis of failure to progress to have a vaginal birth the next time around are pretty dang stinking high. A lot of the time, failure to progress is due to certain factors like failure to wait, Mm -hmm. meaning a provider pushed or or a mom. Maybe maybe you were like, I'm done being pregnant. I want to be induced. And your provider's like, cool, yeah, let's do it. You know, failure to wait for a spontaneous labor or failure to wait for labor to kick in while you are in in your induction. However, like then they're like, okay, we got to, we got to start this labor going. Let's start Pitocin. Let's start this. And they're starting to intervene instead of just allowing the body to receive the induction method and then go forward. I feel like so often in the birth room, I personally, I don't know, Julie, maybe you would say something differently. But I personally see Pitocin being upped way too fast and often too much. Instead of going Mm -hmm. two milliliters every, you know, 45 minutes or so, we're doing two to four milliliters every 30 minutes. And we're not really getting our uterine receptors time to like fully, fully react. 
there um pitocin is actually quick like it it can what's the what's the term julie the receiving time <laughs> like it gets into your body i don't know there's a term oh yeah it gets into your body like how quickly. long it takes to affect take effect yeah yes do you know what i'm talking about okay mm-hmm. so it it actually reacts quickly there's a quick reaction however to it, you know to a full extent sometimes it can take a little longer than a half hour for the body to really really kick in or you know maybe we're like okay let's start pitocin and then we're gonna quickly break your water and then you know all these things and so we're not waiting for labor to kick in we're just forcing labor whether it's you know spontaneous labor and things are going slow and you get in and they check you in and then they're pushing it or you're an induction so failure to wait i personally i don't know if there's actually any like solid solid evidence julie you probably would because you're incredible mm-hmm. with numbers but on breaking water too early I feel like so mm. many times we will see our clients in our practice be told that they need to get their water broken and babies are like minus two station. We're at two, three centimeters and we haven't even gotten into a sod labor pattern. And now we're just open the floodgates. Baby's coming down and we don't even know what position. And then we have a harder labor. Now we're trying to intervene any even more trying to get labor to go because maybe baby came down in a wonky position and so labor's not starting and then it's the cascade there and so i think avoiding water like um arom mm-hmm. artificial rupture of membranes is something that we should <clears throat> particularly like pay attention to maybe to have a checklist of like where what is my contraction pattern like what is labor like am i is it all in my back is there maybe Mm -hmm. a sign that my baby's in a wonky position right now because if so it's going to be harder a lot of the times once that water breaks to get that baby to rotate not impossible just harder um you know is baby too high do we have a higher risk of um cord prelapse like prolapse prolapse (laughs) and we're talking preeclampsia so pre is in my mind you know or or why are we breaking water at two centimeters to begin labor why don't Mm -hmm. we do something else and do a low-dose pit or do fully to try to get us to like a four centimeter state you know so i think i think that's something failure to wait inducing too fast introducing things and then baby's position that's another one that i think is a lot of the time Mm -hmm. for failure to progress a lot of the time when our babies aren't in a you know awesome position it can be harder to put the adequate amount of pressure on the cervix and dilate the cervix properly and in a quote-unquote adequate time right Mm -hmm. anything else julie that you think that failure to progress i'm probably i know i'm probably missing something yeah, no, I mean, you you pretty much got it. I do have one thing to add, though. But first, we have a blog called Why Failure to Progress is Usually Failure to Wait. It's at the vbacklink.com slash failure dash to dash progress. And I just wanted to say, like, I feel like sometimes failure to progress is actually misdiagnosed because uh-huh. ACOG yeah. and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine put out guidelines on what constitutes failure to progress. So this is what the guidelines are. Um, I'm just going to read it right from our blog. It's quote there. And there's also a link to the guideline if you want to go to the blog and find the guideline. So it says, um, the new guideline says that a woman is not considered to be in active labor. Okay. So first of all, you cannot be failure to progress until you hit active labor. That's the first thing. In active yes. labor is not until you're six centimeters dilated, according to all of the guidelines that are out there. 
So like I was diagnosed failure to progress and I was only four centimeters dilated. So that was a misdiagnosis for sure. So it says you can't. I was failure to progress as well. Three centimeters. Yeah, (laughs) for real. Like everybody is, I feel like anyways. So it's not considered to be an active labor until six centimeters dilated and cannot be termed as failure to progress until she is at least six centimeters dilated. We just said that her, her waters have ruptured and no cervical change has been made in six hours of labor. Okay. No, you have to be at least six centimeters dilated. Your waters have to have been broken and you have no cervical change in six hours. Now, listen, a lot of the times we think about cervical change as only dilation. Yes. Cervical change is way more than just dilation. Okay. Cervical change, your cervix moves from posterior to anterior position. It straightens out. It ripens and softens, which means it gets thinner. Not only opens, it gets thinner. So that's effacement, right? If you go from 80% efface to 90% efface in just in six hours, that's that change. is cervical change. That is not failure to progress. It gets softer. It uh, effaces, which thins, it dilates, which opens the baby's head, rotating, flexes and molds. That's all considered part of cervical change and babies descending. If your baby goes from minus one station to zero chase station and you don't dilate any further, that is still considered cervical change because the baby is moving downwards. So I feel like a lot of times failure to progress is misdiagnosed and lots of other things could have helped progress that baby if, like Megan said, we were just patient and give them more time. Yes. And I wanted to um, add on that, like all of those things that Julie just said. And sometimes we might not be making change like dilation, effacement necessarily, but our cervix that was once really posterior is now more anterior. So our cervix is coming more forward, which to me is signs of change and that our body is working because sometimes our cervix has to come forward to do some work, right? And so- Yeah, that was like the first thing I said. It moves from posterior to anterior. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I think it's just, it's so important to know that like, if you're not dilating, you know, it doesn't mean you can't. So- Sorry, I totally missed your first half. No, Um, you're totally fine. Okay, anything else? No, I think that that pretty much covers it. Like I said, all all the things that Megan talked about and the link to those guidelines are in that blog that should be linked in our show notes. Okay, so, okay, let's see. What else is one of the other ones? We um, wanted to talk about fibroids. Mm. This is something we don't talk about a ton, actually. But it's something that we get on our... Did we talk about gestational diabetes? We did, right? We haven't yet. Oh, that's the one I want to talk about first. But fibroids, um, let's do fibroids because okay. fibroids is pretty much the same as special scars. Like is you oh, have a surgery yeah. to remove your uterine fibroids and it leaves a scar. Okay. And the yeah. scar is on some part of your uterus. It just depends on where the fibroids are. And so that would be similar to your chances of success with a special scar because it is a special scar. Yeah, I guess so. I never even thought about it actually like that. Yeah, Because a lot of people will be told that if they have a fibroid, they can't have a vaginal birth. And there are studies that show like you might have increased chances of a breech baby or preterm birth or even cesarean because sometimes those fibroids can grow um, Mm -hmm. a lot and can kind of cause some issues. And so there may be some chances of an increased chance of of cesarean, but that doesn't mean you can't have Mm -hmm. a a vaginal birth and it shouldn't ever just not be considered. And then like she was saying, like sometimes 
people will also get those removed before they get pregnant. And so there's that to consider. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's go to gestational diabetes now. Mm -hmm. I feel like this one is a really hot topic. And if you are listening and you had gestational diabetes with your pregnancy, with your VBAC, we actually are looking for some stories to share this year because it has been one of the most requested stories to get on the podcast. But let's talk about what are your chances, you know, of having a vaginal birth after cesarean with gestational diabetes. I think it's important to note that even despite like the health, you can be the healthiest you can possibly be. And sometimes you get gestational diabetes and we don't really know exactly why sometimes. And you should never shame yourself for having gestational diabetes. I feel like so many times it's like, oh, if I should have just been healthier. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what we should be doing. And then I think with gestational diabetes, sometimes we panic with trying to control our numbers. And sometimes we cut eating or we don't necessarily manage the right way. So I, I think with gestational diabetes, number one is try and learn how to manage it properly and to be as healthy as you can with it. But know that you do not have to have a C-section if you have gestational diabetes. However, you may have a provider who wants to induce your labor. And when I say may, I don't know if I've ever run into a client that had gestational diabetes and didn't get induced. Do you, Julie? Like, have you ever had a client that was not even controlled gestational diabetes that wasn't induced by at least 39 weeks? Yeah, but it was a home birth. I mean, like, okay. Yeah. That yeah. Was kind of complicated. So there you go. Uh, yeah. of, there's more nuance to it than that. But yes, she had a home birth. Um, but her gestational diabetes was managed well. Like, it was even managed with insulin. Yeah. That's what I'm going to say um, about that. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's just fine. That is just fine. So pretty much. And her baby yeah. was like six and a half pounds, by the way. Seriously, so. no, you haven't had a, a gestational client that hasn't had an, a provider, um, aka a hospital provider, um, I should say. Well, no, actually, no. Yeah, my I just had one, but she was you induced did. too. Like with, uh, yeah. But she was induced. About. She was induced. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't had a client that hasn't been, has not been induced. So that is something that you need to probably take note of. If you have gestational diabetes, you may have the discussion coming your way from your provider about being induced. Well, and all the guidelines and recommendations from ACOG are are to induce at 39 weeks right now. Exactly. So I just want people to know that like that could most likely be a thing and it's not that they're not like she said like they're not following evidence it's that's what's suggested by ACOG Mm -hmm. um, but just know that that can be and we know that potentially a a C or an induction could increase chances of c-section because we have all the things we were just talking about earlier all the interventions that could lead to failure to progress or baby in a wonky position or baby baby's not tolerating it well, or maybe your body wasn't quite ready to be induced yet and is not responding properly to uh, the medication that they're wanting to give you. But in a in a, a journal by the um, American Journal of Obstetrician Gynecology, which is like an off-shot journal of ACOG, they say in a total of 100,957 and 739 <laughs> women were eligible for a TOLAC across the study period, 300,000, or sorry, I meant 1 million, 300,086 
underwent a TOLAC. Overall, 74% of non-diabetic, 69% of gestational diabetic, and 58.2% of gestational, pre-gestational diabetic mothers achieved a VBAC. So I'm looking at those numbers and I'm like, okay, those are pretty, pretty good. Um, it says in, in general, there were some lower odds with large gestational for age infants, babies. Um, so we already know that like the big baby thing, like sometimes providers are scared of big, big babies or babies coming down wonky or there's, you know, whatever. And so sometimes big babies will be taken cesarean however it's also to note it to note that if your baby is suspected as large that doesn't mean they're large and also if they are large it doesn't mean they can't come out vaginally we have lots of people that have big babies that come out vaginally i mean julia has personally attended a birth that wasn't it 11 pounds like her baby that home birth shoot i'm trying to remember which one? Because like I've her had name several. Starts with an L, and I'm pretty sure her baby, but she's like little, you guys. And it doesn't start. Like does it start with an, It starts with oh, okay, yeah, with an A, about, an yeah. L, but an A. Yeah, yeah. her baby was uh, ten pounds seven ounces, I think. Okay, yeah. So, her most yeah. recent one, but all, but all of her babies have been well, yeah. not all. One was just a seven pounder, but um, like nine, nine to ten pounds. I totally thought that her other baby was like just over eleven, but like. No, not 11, what but she's, she's five feet, two inches. Like she's a little teeny, like yeah, little, little teeny girl. Yeah. So it is possible. So knowing that if you have gestational diabetes, you will more than likely be induced. I think that if you do have gestational diabetes, control it as much as you can and prepare for induction and learn all the things that you can about induction. And we will have in the show notes, a link for all the things we will have the to like ways to self-induce or, you know, all those things, not self-induce, but like induce non-medically and the ways to induce with a provider and the pros and cons on that. So check that out. Right. And also like, I think it's important to note that there's other complications with gestational diabetes besides just big babies. So inducing at yes. 39 weeks has been shown to reduce the chances of these things happening because the far the more pregnant you are, the farther or the more and the higher your chances are of these things. So complications, is one of them, right? Yep. Hypertension, which is high blood pressure, preeclampsia, uh, low blood sugar, obviously, um, higher chances of a bigger baby for sure. We just talked about that, but um needing even up into needing uh, a C section as well. And so there is some pretty sound evidence for inducing at 39 weeks just because it will decrease your chances of developing those complications in pregnancy as well but yes yeah so and in in the all you know all around i think just doing the the uh education getting the education looking up the information and making the best choice for you yeah okay what else do we have is that about everything i think that's about everything yeah i think we talked about it all all around at the end of the day, I think some biggest things to take away from this episode that you can do is find a supportive provider. How often do we stress that? Find a supportive provider. We have, if you didn't know, in our VBAC link Facebook group, we actually have our list of supportive providers in there under the files tab. So if you are not part of our VBAC link community on Facebook, check it out, answer the questions and go find that file and you can find your state or even country 
and see if there's a a provider on there that is supportive. Also, if you have a a name of a provider that you don't see on that list, please send it over to us with their location and name so we can add to that list and help more women of strength find the support that they deserve. Ask questions. Asking questions is powerful and it's not done enough. I feel like if I look back at all of my pregnancies, even my VBAC, I don't think I even asked nearly enough questions to statements that were made mm. or just in general. So ask questions. If, you, if you're if you unsure of something or something's being told to you, ask the questions and get the information. Educate yourself. Education is power. It is so power, powerful and you need it. You need it. You truly need it. So check out our blogs. Check out this podcast. Keep listening to all of these stories. Every single episode that we put out every single week is going to have little nuggets of information for you and might you know you might be blown away to find out how many of these stories actually relate so much to yours we also have a VBAC course that julie and i spent a lot of hours putting together and i wanted to bring all the evidence to you in a i want to say regurgitated form from from studies because i feel like we read we read those studies and you can read them and it's like wait what And so we regurgitate it back into English and present these facts to you and give you all the things about the history of C-section, the pros and cons of VBAC, uterine rupture signs, all the things. So check out our course. And then, of course, check out our Instagram and Facebook. We're always putting information out there and learning from our community on our Q&As on Thursdays. So other than that, I just wanted to thank you guys for being here. And of course, Julie, thank you for being with me. I always, Yay, always a pleasure to see your face and record with you. It's just something I miss all the time. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always fun. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share to submit your story. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, the worldwide database for VBAC doulas, and more, head over to thevbaclink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.